Hello and a very warm welcome to the gardening podcast that's for everyone who wants to enjoy growing their own flowers, fruit and vegetables. I'm Dan. And I'm Julia. And together we're Two Good Gardeners. We're an all-inclusive podcast, so whether your garden is big or small, north or south, sunny or shady, we are here to share our gardening know-how and great ideas that you can try at home. We upload a new episode every fortnight, packed with news, timely tips and the occasional interview with gardeners we admire. We know you're busy people, so we like to keep things short and sweet. Think of this podcast as a bento box of delicious goodies to be consumed with gusto. And now we've whetted your appetite, let's crack on with episode one of series two, sponsored by Alatex, home of the modern Victorian greenhouse, designed in the UK for over 70 years and built worldwide. Welcome to series two of Two Good Gardeners. We're back, refreshed and raring to go. It feels like months since our last full-length episode and our exclusive interview with Fergus Garrett at Great Dixter, which you should catch up on if you missed it. We're thrilled to be back in the studio sharing our love of growing with you. This episode is going to be jam-packed with news and helpful tips, but before we get started, we want to say a big thank you to the team at Alatex for believing in us and sponsoring a second series. And of course, to you, our listeners, for encouraging us to keep going. We feel very lucky. So, Julia, what have you been up to since we last met in August at Great Dixter? Oh, Dan, it'll be no surprise to you that I have been a bit busy, but wasn't that just the best day that we had, Dan, when we went to Great Dixter? I mean, it is just the most amazing place. And if any of you listening have not had the chance to visit, then I would urge you to go. It closes at the end of October, but the colour is so inspirational and everything is bursting above you, around you, spilling over the paths. It is an experience. But yeah, so going back to what I've been doing. So last weekend, I hosted the annual Giant Onion Competition, which started out as a fun neighbourly activity here between three of us. And it has grown, unlike my onions, to seven neighbours competing. Onion seedlings were distributed in April and we all gathered on Saturday for the judging. I provide tea afterwards uh, and all in all, it's a rather wholesome affair. And then on Sunday, I was back on BBC Radio Sussex and Surrey for the Dig It show when I've got my monthly slots, chatting, all things autumn sewing. And then I was followed by both my daughters who were invited on to do a segment just after me. So they put the headphones on. That was a really fun thing to do. And then I've also been really busy supplying different independent retail outlets with copies of the Little Girls Cookbook, a book that I've co-written. I'm very aware that it's Christmas just round the corner, so I'm getting stock in where I can. The book makes a great gift for children aged 4 to 12. But now, talking of Christmas, Dan... I know that you've been busy ordering stock and Christmas decorations as well as taking your show on the road. So maybe you should tell us where you haven't been as opposed to where you've been. <laughs> that would be an awful lot quicker, I think. But before <laughs> I do that, I really want to know who won the Giant Onion competition, please. Well, sadly, not me. But I knew it wasn't going to be me because although the onions delivered anonymously, I obviously spy a few neighbours creeping up the path. 
and there were some whoppers arriving and I thought oh, it's just I'm going to be last anyway I saw some giant shallots labeled come in so I knew I'd have a placing so I actually came second but actually it wasn't bad all oh. considering and I and you were judged on not just the size because as we know it's not size that matters all the time is it um <laughs> but which are judged on blemishes soggy bottoms how they're trimmed whipped tops did you know there was such a thing and how recently they have been skinned and in fact whether they've been skimmed too much so there's a lot there's a lot to contend for and a cup is presented to the winner so there was a big smiley face and we had a lovely toast to mary our neighbor who is no longer with us but who created the whole competition several years ago (laughs) oh well it sounds like a lovely tradition and i think second is a very gracious place to finish as the hostess of oh, the event you. so congratulations <laughs> um yes i i'm a bit delirious i mean thank goodness our listeners can't see me because i've got big bags under my eyes but i have been <laughs> all around the country in the last few weeks as far as east ruston old vicarage in norfolk last saturday then at saltwood castle the sunday afterwards where it was ferociously hot it was that weekend where we all basked in temperatures over 30 degrees and yes august turned out to be one of the busiest ever months for dun cooper garden which was great and september shaping up to be pretty good too all the rain that we've had in july and august has sent our garden and allotment into complete overdrive and now it's turned dry and settled again there's a lot of watering required to keep all that foliage and flower going And after a shaky start, lots of plants have absolutely excelled. So we've had bumper crops of raspberries and tomatoes. And our dahlia imperialis, if anybody knows that, it's a giant tree dahlia, is further ahead than it has ever been before. It's a plant known for teasing you with flower buds around November, December time. And then, of course, the frost gets it and they never open. But this year, we are hopeful of a very good display. Oh, fantastic. Can you share a photo later, maybe, so we can all see it? I will. I mean, it is the most spectacular thing when it flowers. It has huge pink flowers the size of a sort of hanky that dangle down from sort of 10 foot above. We have got a couple of other varieties which we're hoping might flower, but they're variations of Dahlia imperialis, so we shall see if they come to anything. One thing I I thought would be great, though, to share with listeners, because they might remember me talking about my traditional sowing of annuals on Midsummer's Day, and it has resulted in some of the strongest, healthiest plants I've grown this year. They have outshone anything that I sowed earlier in the year, particularly marigolds, which are sort of waist high and covered in flowers. And it really goes to show that you don't have to sow too early. You can be sowing right up to late June and still have a wonderful display of flowers because so many flowers, as we're going to talk about in a bit, are encouraged to bloom by shortening day length. So cosmos, marigolds, plants like that are are being encouraged by these shorter days to produce more and more bloom. So I'm thrilled with that and my tradition will continue. Fantastic. Do you think it's the Kent seaweed you've been feeding your plot? (laughs) Very possibly. I mean, we have had 
a huge amount of cast seaweed on our beaches down here and actually just earlier today I had to close the windows up a bit because it sort of ferments on the sand. Yes, it's been a very seaweedy year this year. (laughs) Okay, good. Well, long may that continue if we have benefits on the plot. So every episode we discuss a hot topic and to kick off our first autumn episode, we are going to discuss how to inject late autumn colour into your garden inspired from our outing to Great Dixter. Yes, I mean, it's hard not to be inspired by a trip to Great Dixter, a garden that sort of embraces this idea of keeping colour going for as long as possible. And, you know, in many senses, that's a commercial thing because obviously it's a well-known garden and they want to encourage visitors to come for the longest period possible. But it's also an art form, that layering of plants to um, create colour going right the way through. And arguably gardens like Great Dixter and some others I've been to, like Sussex Prairies, East Ruston Old Vicarage that I mentioned earlier, are absolutely at their best at this time and for the next few weeks because the plants and flowers are reaching a crescendo of colour and vigour. And I go to these gardens and I come back absolutely buzzing from them. Of course, you can keep the colour going in lots of different ways. You can do it with exotics like bananas, cannas and salvias. But those are tender plants and they require quite a lot of hard work. As you know, Julia, I go in for all of that. But for some people, that is (laughs) high maintenance. So I think we're going to focus for this little segment on the sort of Central American and uh, North American prairie plants that are very hardy in our climate. We're going to throw in some annuals as well, I think, but we're going to talk about things that are relatively easy to grow. Yeah, so, it, it, I mean, I am craving autumn colour more so this year than any other. So I think it's a fantastic hot topic that we're going to discuss. I mean, we here have a beautiful garden not too far, Gravetie Manor Hotel and Gardens. It's kind of relatively on our doorstep. And it is my birthday looming, so we're, we've booked a treat to have dinner there, which is very special. But I am actually slightly more excited about walking round the gardens. <laughs> they are beautiful and if you are dining there you are allowed just to roam they have the most stunning vegetable garden so it was built and created by William Robinson sort of turn of the 20th century and I'm going to go and immerse myself but I was just wondering for dinner is it too early to arrive early afternoon do you think to wander around the gardens (laughs) or will I be booted out before I've even eaten anything (laughs) I chance your arm and you know and sort of uh, you know, if all else fails, you can say, don't you know who I am? You know. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely be sure packing. They... <laughs> that is a marvellous garden. And, you know, it is a great time to visit gardens for inspiration, yeah. particularly if you're feeling your garden is a little bit tired. I mean, for private gardeners like us, really the benefit of extending colour into autumn is so that we can enjoy them for a bit longer. But there is a good byproducts because so many of the plants whether it's a sort of sunflower or a teasel or whatever it might be are going to provide shelter and pollen and seeds for wildlife to benefit from over the winter and so these late summer plants have a, a much longer useful life than just the time that they're growing and flowering 
Now, I've got a big soft spot for daisies. And so if you're a yellow hater, you're probably going to want to turn the volume down for the rest of this bit until I've moved on. (laughs) It's me. Hands up. I'm a yellow hater. (laughs) Uh, Well, I used to be. I'm embracing it. A few have been sneaked into my borders in the main garden, namely Rebecca and Helianthus. Lemon Queen, I think, the one I have here. But I have to say... They do look fantastic at the moment with the rich burgundies of the sedums and grasses. And they even are a lovely foil for my deep pink cosmos. So I I have to eat my hat, I think. Yes. I mean, a garden without yellow isn't really a garden. It's sort of almost as indispensable as green. But let's not get onto that subject. Another (laughs) hot topic for another day. So you mentioned Rebecca's. And of course, there are so many great ones. I went to Sussex Prairies very recently and they had... Uh, a patch of Rebecca Fulgida Goldstern, which was nearly as big as most people's gardens. You know, a <laughs> big swathe of golden flowers with that sort of dark middle. It is one of those indispensable garden plants. It's very neat and low growing. It never goes crazy. But when it flowers, it is just plastered with flowers. And of course, the wildlife love them. I have grown another Rebecca called Prairie Glow, Rebecca Triloba Prairie Glow this year. And that's a much less orderly and more sort of freeform plant. So if you like the look you get from Cosmos with sort of smaller flowers fluttering over a fairly tall plant, then that is a really great one to grow. Mm. And the flowers are sort of yellow with various smudges of sort of copper and orange on them. So look that one up. You can definitely grow it from seed. And then what I've been really impressed with is one that my partner picked out earlier this year, and it's Rebecca Laciniata Herbstsonne. And actually, you'll notice that many late flowering perennials have German names, and that's because the Germans really pioneered the use of perennials in gardens during the sort of 80s and 90s. And so there are lots of varieties which have uh, German names. But the thing I love about uh, Herbstsonne is that it doesn't get those sort of autumnal hues that many plants have. So it looks very, very green and vital at this time of year. It has sort of palish green leaves, these beautiful canary yellow flowers with droopy petals. And I look at it and I just think, how nice to see a plant that's looking fresh as a daisy literally Mm. (laughs) and of course they're very closely related to sunflowers and we've just purchased ourselves a perennial sunflower which is different to the ones that we tend to grow as annuals called monarch which has again quite nice semi-double flowers not too formal looking and we're going to put that in with some of our other daisies and see how that gets on Oh, perennial sunflower, that sounds fantastic. So talking of sunflowers, which I can't cope with the German tongue twisters at the moment, but let's get back (laughs) onto safe ground. I don't grow yellow because, as I've said, it's not my favourite colour, but I grow a red variety called Velvet Queen, which is, I guess it is red. It's sort of like a brownie burnt sugar colour. It's absolutely beautiful. And it's a multi-stemmed one. So you can keep picking and they have a great vast life. So they'd be a great one to add in, I think, wouldn't they, to adding to deep colour? Yes, I love the multi-stemmed dahlias because they look a little bit more natural than the big 
tall, stiff, upright ones. They blend in quite well in a border. An interesting one, Heliopsis helianthoides. The, the botanists went to town with that name. There's one called Bleeding Hearts. And again, if you're not so keen on the yellow, this has flowers that open quite a deep, rich, coppery red and then fade to orange. But what's nice about it is that it has quite striking dark foliage so the flowers show up really well against it and it's a much shorter plant so maybe 90 centimetres to a metre. I think a Great Dixter we were both blown away by the cosmos there of course cosmos is an annual the ones we're talking about are an annual anyway but there is nothing quite like a cosmos late in the year because they produce this sort of frothy ferny foliage that look again very green And they just seem to come into their own when the dewy mornings start and they're covered in cobwebs and they just look absolutely beautiful. And I I think the one that we were most taken with was called Double Click Cranberries, wasn't it? It was uh, a sort of deep, deep pink, really beautiful. Yeah, I mean, Cosmos, all those things you said are superb. And also, they're they're very tall, aren't they, at this time of year? So they do add a lot of drama to the beds. I'm so grateful for mine. I've got a range of the pinks. Um, There's a really lovely frilly two-tone one that I've got, which I think might be Bipinatus carmine. I'm not sure. Um, But the main thing with Cosmos is you need to keep deadheading because it's very easy to stand back and admire, isn't it? But keep on deadheading and they'll keep coming back quite quickly in a few days, won't they? Yes, they can be fiddly to deadhead, I have to say, particularly when you've been doing daily as you get to the Cosmos and think, oh, a bit fiddly. But get yourself a good pair of snips and it'll make the whole thing a lot easier. Yes. A plant that really caught my attention, and this is at Doddington Place in uh, Kent, is Althea cannabia. I think that's how you pronounce it. Oh, cannabina, that's right, cannabina. I think it's because there is some resemblance to cannabis just visual okay not a scent. but it's like someone has crossed a hollyhock with gypsophilia so it's a very very tiny flower on very tall sort of eight nine foot tall stems with very little leaf on it so it's gauzy to look at you can see other plants through it um mm. And it's really, really lovely. So I've just bought myself some seeds from Chilton Seeds and I'm going to be having a go at that. And another plant that I picked up this time at Sussex Prairies was Vernonia arkansana and it's called Mammoth, which I think, well, as well as probably the German spelling. Ironweed, and that is a plant that sort of looks a little bit thistly, the individual flowers, but it's a lovely, rich sort of royal purple and... When I saw it at Sussex Prairies, it was covered in butterflies. So we're adding that in to break up the daisies so that we've got lots of different flower shapes. That sounds lovely. And presumably with a name like Mammoth, it is giant. Does it tower above? Well, ironically, it is supposed to be a slightly less large variety than the species but oh. we shall we shall see julia we'll okay see. well we'll look forward to hearing about that i mean i've got the plain and boring i guess category of the japanese and enemies because they kind of just pop up everywhere but they are adding huge amounts to the borders at the moment so and they're, i guess they're daisy like so we could include them here i have the white ones and i've got pretty pretty pale pink ones too and they are a little bit like a piece of the furniture in my beds you know i, I can rely on them they're like an old piece of furniture they come back every year they spread so i can divide them give them away compost them they're they're, they're pretty good and they do add good color and then my other favorite thing 
it's not really colour, but it's adding fresh flowers, are hydrangeas. And I grow Annabelle, which is that really big, sort of fluffy, big white heads. They're huge and they're quite droopy. But what I love about them is in the spring, they're bright, vibrant green, like a viburnum. And then they flower all the way through to now. And if it's too dry, they will go brown. But if you can water them, they'll stay. And if you cut off the deadheads, they send more flowers, admittedly smaller, but there's always something fresh going on. So I think they've got huge value, particularly here in my beds where I don't spend that much time in the main garden. Because as you know, my favourite spot is the vegetable <laughs> garden. So that gets full attention and the back garden has to sort of struggle on a bit so hydrangeas are great for that and I guess they sort of have a prairie feel do they I'm not sure I think they do I think you know they, they're sort of blousey aren't they and um yeah you know great doers and I, going back to your Japanese and Emily it's so easy to become dismissive of these quite common flowers yeah. but n- never forget that you know of many plants there are other varieties so if you've seen enough of the shell pink one there are white ones there are darker pink ones there are doubles so go in search of an unusual variety but you know the reason you see so much of them is because they perform very well in gardens and again at Doddington Place recently I saw huge drifts of the white one and I honestly thought what could be prettier than that so yeah. you know, embrace them if they do the work for you they keep the weeds down and they look pretty for a long season go with it As you know, I go to lots and lots of plant fairs and that really is a great way for anyone listening to go and find what's looking good at that moment. Better even than the garden centre because many plants in garden centres are sort of bought on or held back so that they are looking at their best when they're in the garden centre. If you go to a plant fair, you'll see what's genuinely flowering at that moment and get advice from the expert nurseries. So um, I've got a few coming up, which I'll tell everyone about later on, but it's a really good way to find those unusual varieties or just ask a bit of advice about what's going on. So yes, that would be my top tip if you want to get some colour right now. I crave colour in the vegetable garden, my favourite place, and I crave it on my plate too. I think they go hand in hand, so what you're growing and then you're bringing a rainbow onto your plate. And when the summer crops dwindle, which they are at the moment, I rely on my dailies and zinnias, which I have in the cutting patch. But I also let the nasturtiums trail everywhere. They're kind of going up through the peach tree at the moment because they do add essential colour. Bright pops of orange and red are going through. And I also have a deep red amaranthus, which can be edible, but it's also grown as a cut flower. And that looks beautiful, along with the rainbow chard. And my lettuces, I always make sure that I grow red and green ones because it is important to have colour. It does kind of make your heart skip with joy in the mornings, doesn't it? To have bright splashes. Mm. And going back to the yellow, which I said I dislike... I actually embrace yellow in the veg patch because, of course, the pumpkins and the squashes and all the flowers of all those are bright, bright yellow. But they are joyous and I welcome them. And I'm not sure if that's because I know there's something fruitful behind it, Um, but I really don't mind them there. And, of course, the artichokes I let go to seed and flower, which are bright splashes of purple. And, of course, they bring the pollinators in. So, yeah, I think colour everywhere, no matter what you're doing in the garden, what you use it for, if it's veg or herbaceous beds or a container it is good to keep the colour going for as long as you can so there we are lots of ideas for getting late summer colour into your garden 
now down to you to go off and find some gaps where you can put some new plants in. Now, every episode, Julia enlightens us with a seasonal project and I highlight a product from my online garden shop. Julia, what clever trick do you have in mind for us to do this time? I do have a trick. I'm not sure it's clever, but I think it's an organised trick, and that is autumn sowing. Yes, you heard correctly, autumn sowing is a thing, and no, I have not lost the plot. There are a surprising amount of vegetables and some fruit that you can sow and grow in the autumn, and they actually prefer being planted this side of Christmas, producing bigger, earlier and much better crops than if you were to sow them in the spring, which of course you could still do just need to be organised. Each autumn there are two things that I would put at the top of my list that I sow every single year and they are broad beans and onions. Uh, broad beans, I know you can sow them in the spring, most people do, but if you're ahead of the game and order your seed and sow them in deep pots so you can do this outside because the weather's still quite warm. I use loo rolls because as you know I'm a thrifty person at heart and keep them watered and then once they're big enough to handle you can pop them straight outside into the border or the bed wherever they're going to go even maybe a pot and they will settle in and put really really deep roots in you can plant them directly outside and at the same time as planting them add a stake it's important to put a stake in you won't need to use the stake or tie them in at this stage but next spring you will need to tie them in and it's important to do it now because by planting your broad bean seedlings soon they will put a deep root down and you don't want to damage that root next spring so put your stake in put your broad bean seedling in and just completely ignore them and they will sit there they will obviously stop growing when the daylight hours get too short but they're very happy sitting there they will have had this great root system developed below and yes they will survive the wet the cold the flooding the freezing temperatures the snow they are incredible they are known as a hardy annual and in fact i think we should rename them as super hardy annuals and the best thing about them is not only that next spring if you tie them in when they get taller and you remove the growing tips so they don't become massive jack and the beanstalk plants the key is to keep them between three and four foot then they'll produce a really early crop of beans for you and they won't have any black fly it's as if they've conditioned themselves or maybe they lose a scent by becoming so hardy but the black fly will not appear on your autumn sown broad beans and that has to be a huge win julia is there any reason why you couldn't plant the broad beans straight in the ground at this time of year absolutely you can but with me and autumn gardening it's quite easy to possibly forget or to trample on something coming through when you're maybe removing another crop and I am a bit of a control freak so I do quite like to very pleasingly plant out my individual plants but there is nothing to stop you you can make drills and pop them in as long as you label them and just remember where they are I guess I'm creating a bit more work, but I like something pleasing about planting as an individual plant. But good question, Dan. Then the onion sets, which I also plant this side of Christmas, or in fact, October time is the best time to plant them. Onion sets, as opposed to seeds, are basically heat-treated, immature onions that you buy from reputable garden centres or online shops. And they are super hardy as well. And when they arrive, you just nudge them into the soil. This is directly outside. 
nudge them into the soil don't completely bury them so keep them about 50 to 70 percent outside the soil and when they're nudged in water them in once and then completely ignore them again and they too will put down these really strong roots and again they will survive all the elements and they'll come up smelling of onions as opposed to roses next spring (laughs) and you will get an earlier onion harvest I think they are brilliant. I think there are lots of varieties now available for everyone to do autumn sowing ones. I do a red called Red Baron, and I also sometimes have used Electric, which is another red colour. They look fun in the ground. And obviously the normal yellow ones are also really good. Just check when you're ordering them that it does say good for autumn sowing. To be perfectly honest, they probably are all fine, but I would just probably tick that box. So those are my two favourite things. And the stalwarts, really, they, they really don't go wrong. But a while ago, Dan, you very kindly gave me a present of some seeds. And one of the varieties was giant parsley. And I was intrigued because I usually sow parsley in the spring. Anyway, I have sown, as the seed packet says, and they've already germinated. So we're two weeks in and I've got some nice seedlings, a little small tray. I sowed them in the greenhouse and they're now sitting outside during the day and I'm going to transplant them very soon to one of the beds and it means that I will be able to pick parsley leaves this side of Christmas and then through the winter provided I don't take all the leaves and then through to next summer as well and then the end of next summer the plant will die go to seed and give up but how great is that having parsley on my doorstep in my vegetable garden so thank you for enlightening me that I can do that (laughs) yes that's fine and do you know that's Sarah Raven's desert island herb I think she said on her podcast and very 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 hardy it's been so popular at Dan Cooper Garden that there are none left for me to grow now so (laughs) I might have to try mine in spring I will share a seedling or two with you, seeing I have so many. (laughs) And other vegetables to sow and grow directly outside for a later crop. You can try radishes now and beetroot, cut and come again salad leaves. The above will be slightly smaller. The beetroot will be as well. But it doesn't matter because pick smaller globes. They take less time to cook and you can use the leaves as a salad leaf. Spinach, I've just sown some spinach. Kale, can still keep sowing kale. Peas will last through the winter. And then winter salads, so you could sow these in your greenhouse. So pak choy, mizuna, rocket, the mustards, they'll keep going all winter if they're protected. And then also carrots, provided they are shallow-rooted ones. So I've sown parabel, which is a round carrot, so that may be ready in about maybe late November. Um, And also not forgetting there are lots of flowers and sweet peas, which is something else I sow, but that's a whole different topic and a different day. So that's all my autumn sewing trick, Dan. (laughs) We're going to be busy. We're going to be busy. And you've put the pressure on me now to get out and do a little bit more seed sewing. So thank you very much. Well, make hay while the sun shines, as they say. But Dan, (laughs) so what interesting and useful product are you going to tell us about from your array of goodies? Well, you'll remember in the last series, I introduced flower frogs and talked about flower frogs. I'm not sure they need introducing, but these little discs of brass spikes, which you can use for holding flowers in position. And they have been wildly popular because people are really keen not to use 
oasis anymore and also there's a style of flower arranging now which is much more relaxed and more minimalist than the big altarpiece arrangements that perhaps our parents and grandparents used to do so brilliant kenzan but of course what do you put them in and i i started displaying them in japanese rice bowls and things and lo and behold you know it's never what you expect people kept asking me if they could buy the bowls and so i thought well i'd better find something i'd better find something that people that's interesting and unusual because it's not difficult to find a japanese rice bowl so i scoured the marketplace and i found these beautiful flower bowls I'm holding up one here, which is shaped Ooh. like a dahlia. Very deep um, bowl. And it's sort of got the relief of a dahlia petals in a pretty sort of antique rosy pink colour. This is just one of them. And what's brilliant about these bowls is that a Kenzan fits absolutely perfectly in the bottom. Now, I'm doing a lovely demonstration for Julia here, but it's a flared bowl and the recess in the bottom of the bowl is about six centimetres, which is the same diameter as the Kenzan or flower frog. And because the flower frog has a rubber ring round it, that just helps it just grip in the bottom of the bowl and you can put your flowers in, top it up with a little bit of water and put your flowers in. And they sort of look like they're emerging from this lovely array of petals. Yeah. And so I've I've got a cosmos flower, a daisy, a buttercup, anemones, and of course, because these come from a Portuguese company, the originators of cabbageware, which most of us have a little bit of cabbageware somewhere in a cupboard or pride of place. I know, Julia, you use yours a lot. Yeah. But this is the factory that originally came up with cabbageware back in the 1800s and still making it today and making these beautiful bowls as well. So I have just launched these on the website. If you go on quickly, you'll probably find that they're still there on the homepage. And yeah, they've been flying out, particularly the buttercup, which is yellow. There we are. So people do like yellow flowers after all. So (laughs) that is my product of the week. Oh, Dan. Well, as you know, I do have a penchant for all things cabbage. And yes, I'm collecting the plates and I've got a couple of bowls, but I might have to add some of those. The pink daily one you've been holding up has really got my name on it now. Oh, it sounds <laughs> lovely. And also how brilliant, though, that the firm is still manufacturing and producing and selling. Yes. And they do have a huge range and some really quite quirky things. Um, so, yes, if these go well, there will be more coming behind them. Yes, no. And what a perfect pairing to give with the Kenzan if you want a slightly bigger present for someone, because I've been giving your flower frogs to lots of friends. Sorry, everyone who's listening. There'll be some coming if you haven't had your birthday yet. But they are fantastic (laughs) because also they're really easy to wrap. They're very square, aren't they? (laughs) Yes, yes. I mean, I, I am selling a lot as pairs now. And I think as Christmas approaches, it will make a very nice, quick and easy gift. I've even had people buy the entire flower arrangement at different events I've done so my dahlias and things have been going off to new homes which is lovely to see yes absolutely now every episode I choose my pick of the bunch while Julia shares her top of the crops at this time of year it is a bumper harvest and we're both really spoiled for choice but what top of the crops are you going to tempt us with this week Julia 
Well, I wondered if you'd figured it out. There's a little oh. clue intended. <laughs> Something fruity for a change um, I'm going to talk about. And considering I've been tucking into these for the past month, I'm going to extol the virtues of figs. Oh boy, I love them. I even wear a fig perfume. It's my favourite perfume. Anyway, some of you might say this is far too exotic to grow in this country here in the UK, but it's not they really are very easy to grow and there are certain varieties that you can buy over here that will grow very well in our conditions and our climate. The only thing you've got to bear in mind is that they need a sunny, sheltered spot, preferably against a wall or a shed or a building or a fence, but they like to be protected. So if you've got an area that's crying out for some planting, buy a fig they are incredible um they would need added protection through the winter months if you didn't grow against a wall but probably against something would be much better you'll get a better crop they are ready for harvesting in this country in late august september depending on the weather they might go through a bit to october but probably not and a lot of people say to me well you talk about figs julia but how do i know when a fig is ripe and that's quite easy you've just got to go and press the fruit gently squeeze and if it's soft it is ripe and ready to eat they don't change color sometimes and some do so i grow one called brown turkey which is brilliant for this country and they do actually turn purpley brownie burgundy but some of the other varieties stay green so you can just tell by pressing they're very good for you they're surprisingly low in calories even though they're so sweet they've got a high content of potassium magnesium and very very rich in fiber particularly if you eat the skin so they're very good keeping us regular as well always very good <laughs> i do eat the skin and all it's all edible it's tasty but you don't have to you can peel them but that's really how i prefer them straight from the tree warm and delicious but they can also be baked, dried, roasted, added to cakes, caramelised. And I think I saw that somebody actually even pickles them. To keep them longer, once you've picked them, you can put them in the fridge. But I prefer them at room temperature. But like anything, a fridge will preserve them for longer. They'll keep for probably up to about five days in a fridge. So I've got the variety called brown turkey, which is reliable and hardy. But there's also... Brunswick, which grows well over here, and another French named one called Rouge de Bordeaux, but that one would need the sunniest spot because it thrives in France and anyway in the south of France. Um, but the way to grow figs is to either take a cutting, so if a friend or someone you know has a prolific fig tree, then snip off a nice tender stem. Pop it into a pot, a well-drained compost, add some grit, and you will be amazed that it will just take very, very quickly. I mean, as easy as taking a lavender or rosemary cutting. I took one in the spring and it's already taken. It's got lots of leaves on some new buds. So that's quite exciting, a plant for free. But if you're not lucky enough to know anyone that has a fig tree, then buy them. But they're bought as rooted cuttings or a small tree. And you could keep them in a pot if you wanted to, bearing in mind you need to change the pot size as they get bigger, because figs, strangely, love having their roots contained. So my advice is if you're going to plant one in the bed outside, which is what I did, I placed three slabs, paving slabs, around the base as I planted the fig tree so that I'm encouraging the roots to go deeper rather than spreading far and wide, because they will do. And if you get a deeper root and a smaller root the fig tree will put more energy into producing fruit 
rather than leaves and stems and becoming gigantic. They need a lot of water to start off with, but once established, I don't water mine. They just have to get on with it. The only time I would consider watering my fig tree is if it is literally wilting in front of me. And bearing in mind they're from a Mediterranean climate, they rarely do that. You can grow them in a greenhouse beautifully. You would need to give them lots of water and you can either grow them in a bed in the greenhouse or in a container. And they're actually fantastic for greenhouses because when they put their leaves on, they provide a natural shade. And then when they lose their leaves come autumn time, they let more light in. So it saves you having to buy shading for your greenhouse. If you've got space, it's a really good idea. What else can I tell you about figs? So you could remove the developing figs in the winter. So you kind of tend to get two crops on a stem. So you get the figs that look like embryo figs and they develop and they're ready now. But you will also see lots that just don't really do anything. So some people remove all those as the winter comes. I tend to leave them. They tend to just naturally fall off. And if we have a hot summer next summer, you may get the odd one developing into a fig as well. You mulch and prune them in late winter, early spring, when the tree is dormant. That's essential. You could cut away leaves now to let the sunshine ripen the fruit if it's outside. And other than eating straight from the tree or with cheese, my favourite recipe is to have them grilled. It's an Ottolenghi dish marinated in pomegranate molasses and vanilla. It's very delicious and I will share that with you to go on the show notes. And there's a fun figgy fact that the fruit is in fact an inverted flower. The flower is inside in the fleshy bit, so that's very rare. And the other thing is that a lot of people say, gosh, they've read that every fig has a wasp inside. The wild Mediterranean fig trees would have a wasp because they need to be pollinated and there's a particular type of wasp that enters the base of the fig. But worry not, because the figs sold over here in supermarkets are varieties that do not need to be pollinated, so there are no wasps involved. (laughs) (laughs) That's a relief. Yes, I have heard all sorts of curious things about that. And did you know, I know you have, you've already shared one fun fig fact, but did you know that there is a tiger fig called panache that has got stripy fruits? I did not, and I need to meet panache. <laughs> you do. There's a Christmas <laughs> present idea for you, Julia. <laughs> and of course, you mentioned the fig scent that you wear. The, the leaves have a lovely uh, scent as well, don't they? Especially when you crush them. Oh, they're really lovely. That's almost the smell of my perfume. But yes, so I actually use them to make a fig leaf panna cotta. So you just Mm. gently sort of stew the figs in the cream mixture and then strain them. Oh, the the taste is delicious. The taste is as good as the scent. And you can make tea, those sorts of things you can do with the leaves. Fantastic. I never let my fig tree produce figs because I just have it for the leaves, which is sacrilege, isn't it? But um, yes, you've tempted me now. Good, good. Well, Dan, so it's your turn to talk about pick of the bunch. And much as it pains me to say that we are flying headfirst towards autumn, my dahlias have only just come into full flow. So please inspire us with your topic of pick of the bunch. Yes, well, of course it is dahlias, and I haven't had that this year. As you, as you know, I've been I've been flaunting my dahlias at you for for <laughs> for months, and they were quite early here. That may be because we left them in the ground over winter, and so they got a head start. But 
interesting that they sort of emerged from the ground anywhere between the end of April and the end of June. So they, they all came out of bed at very different times. But they're really hard to beat at this time of year. As we talked about earlier, they are a short-day flowering plant. So as they sense that the days are getting shorter, they're basically thinking, hurry up, I need to flower, I need to produce seeds. And so their whole mission in life now is to flower, 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 literally almost flower themselves to death, although they won't do that, of course. But so the key thing to do is to inhibit that process. So if you want to keep your dahlias going and that colour going, that you have to deadhead them because you want to thwart every attempt of them to flower and set seed. And the more you cut, the better. If you're cutting dahlia flowers as well, you want to cut them as low down in the plant as you can, which I know is sometimes really hard to do. It's a bit gut-wrenching to take a big chunk of the plant off, but actually the vigour is in the bottom of the plant. And if you cut them down quite low, you will get um, much stronger shoots coming up to replace them. There are a few watch-outs though at this time of year with your dahlias. I think probably timely to talk about them now. And one of them is powdery mildew, which has already reared its ugly head on our allotment. And that is triggered by three things, dry soil, high air humidity and poor ventilation. And if you get that combination, which unfortunately is quite common at this time of year, then powdery mildew sets in and you'll know it because it looks sort of like an ashy coating on the leaves. It starts off as little spots, it eventually covers the whole leaf and that in turn prevents the leaves from photosynthesising, stunts the growth and prematurely stops the plant from flowering. So it's a bit unsightly, definitely not a killer though. So if you see powdery mildew, there's a couple of things you can do. One is to remove all the lower leaves from your dahlias because it's really the humidity that's around the bottom of the plant that's causing it. So take those lower leaves off. Don't put them on your compost heap. Burn them or chuck them away in your green waste or something. But don't put them on your compost heap because you don't want those spores necessarily going in there. But that will help to let the air flow a bit round the bottom of the dahlia and that might just stop it going quite so quickly. And of course, the other thing to really watch out for, which I I think could become a real problem for gardeners in the future, is that there are lots of mosaic viruses, lots of leaf viruses that dahlias are suffering from at the moment. And if you have any plants that are looking a little bit sickly, and you look at the leaves and you can see a kind of mosaic or net effect of slightly yellowy patches with darker green patches in between that is probably a mosaic virus and you really need to make sure that you dig those plants out as soon as possible and completely destroy them because any sap sucking insect like a green fly or a black fly will spread that virus from one plant to the other and it isn't possible to cure a dahlia that has mosaic virus so once it's got it, it's got it, and you really need to get rid of it. The The long-term effect of the mosaic virus will be that it causes the plant to become stunted and deformed. 
you might get blackish patches appearing as well. So just get rid of them and make sure that you end the year with nice clean stock if you're going to keep your dahlias over winter, whether you're digging them up or leaving them in the ground like I do. But yes, it is the time to just pick, pick, you know, bring them indoors because as soon as the weather gets colder, they start to go slightly paler and slightly more sickly colours. They'd never look quite as strong, even if they're flowering into the end of October and November. So pick them now and really enjoy them. And I've had some absolute crackers this year. Some old favourites like Christopher Taylor, which I can't do without, has the best stems for cutting of any dahlia. Tartan, which is a real trooper. That one's sort of like a blackberry ripple sort of colour. And Jasudi Hercules, which is like a little coral sea urchin. I absolutely love it. That's Those are old favourites of ours. But we have also grown one called Newlands Josephine, which is a beautiful sort of peachy, creamy, coloured ball-shaped da- dahlia, which is lovely. And Rycroft Blackberry, which is very hard to describe. The best way to describe the colour is a bit like a toffee apple. Um, it's just the most gorgeous sort of burnt, conquery, caramel colour flower. Very hard to describe. Grow it and see what I mean. But yes, enjoy your dahlias now while you can. And yes, they're a, they're a huge pleasure. And next year we're already planning what we're going to have in our display. Oh my goodness, you've tempted me. I'm going to have to have some of your favourites, Dan. But, you know, you're coming out with all the names today, aren't you? Just Sudi Hercules. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, I I want to know whether you've actually eaten a dahlia. So uh, you're probably going to say, yes, you've eaten a flower petal on a salad, which is relatively common way to to use them because they add lots of colour. But did you know that the tubers are edible as well? I did know. I think I like them far too much as a garden plant to to, <laughs> to be bothered with all of that. I'm I'm sure I'm sure they're lovely, but I've grown lots of tuberous things like yacons and things like that, and I just yes. like the upper parts. I <laughs> never be bothered to dig them up and eat them. But yes, I will take your word for it, Julia. <laughs> Well, I read somewhere that you could actually make bread from dahlia tubers. I mean, I knew you could cook them like potatoes and Jerusalem artichokes. And I did think to myself, gosh, because last year, and I'm sure lots of you also suffered, you know, I used to, used to, because I'm not doing it anymore, dig up all my dahlias. And I, rather than save them all and lose the whole lot, I should have just boiled them and eaten them. <laughs> oh, I just can't get my head. I'm sure it's delightful, but I'm not going to. <laughs> I'm not that desperate yet. I don't blame you. Now, we round off every episode with a rundown of the jobs you can be doing in your garden over the next fortnight. And this time, it's Julia's turn to keep us all on the straight and narrow. What should we be doing in the next fortnight, Julia? Right, so you should be, if you've paid attention and listened earlier on, be ordering (laughs) your onion sets. (laughs) Order your tulips if you haven't already done that. Keep watering pots, harvest courgettes regularly, remove leaves on grapevines and fig trees, as I've said, to let more sunlight in to ripen and tomatoes too. Sow more salads, fennel, beetroot for later crops in the greenhouse or under cover. Take cuttings, as you know, it's an ideal time to take fig cuttings. Order indoor bulbs for Christmas. 
Remove shading or netting in your greenhouses as the light starts to diminish to let as much daylight in as you can. And finally, keep a lookout for the dreaded box moth caterpillar and spray or pick them off because they have returned with a vengeance here in Sussex. You're so right with all of that, but, but especially with the cuttings. And I think for anyone with a very small garden like me who can't overwinter lots of big tender plants like coleus and plectranthus and things like that, I am fervently taking cuttings now, rooting them in little jam jars of water or pots of gritty soil. And that means that I can keep those plants in small form over the winter, get rid of the parents, and then in the spring, those plants will grow away really quickly. The other thing that I've taken lots of cuttings of is some of the violas that I really love. And they, again, are so easy to take cuttings of. And of course, you can make yourself tens of plants that way because they tend to have lots of nice, juicy little shoots on. So yes, get taking cuttings. That would be my top tip out of your list. Okay, that's a good tip, Dan. But but where would you advise of people to keep their cuttings? Where do you keep your cuttings to overwinter them? Well, right next to me in my office, I usually set out a little tiny folding table with a melamine top, which goes right in front of the window, not near a radiator, but near an east-facing window, so it gets the morning sun. And they stay there. And I think the, the reason I put them right by my desk is so that I can keep an eye on them because it is very easy to forget about things in the winter. Yes. The garden isn't always your main focus. And sometimes, particularly in a warm house, you can get sort of, you know, green fly and things creeping yeah. in. So keep them somewhere, a bright kitchen window sill, a porch, somewhere where you're going to see them often. And that way you'll remember to water them and just keep an eye out for any pests and diseases. That would be my top tip. But you don't need very much space. Back to that whole thing about powdery mildew. Just make sure the air is circulating. Don't let them get hot and dry and they should be fine. OK, great. Thanks, Dan, because I could just picture you taking your cuttings and thinking, where on earth are they going to live? So that's good. <laughs> so before we go, we'd like to share what we will be up to between now and the next episode in two weeks. So, Dan, what are you up to and where can we find you? Well, the events continue unabated. And on Sunday, the 24th of September, I'll be doing my very last plant fair of the season at Mount Ephraim Gardens near Faversham in Kent. It's a new one for the Plant Fairs Roadshow, so I'm very excited to be going there and it's very close to home as well. On Tuesday, the 26th of September, ding dong, merrily on high, I'm launching my new range of Christmas decorations, felt as well as glass this time. And the next day, you'll find me at the East Kent ploughing match of all things. Something very different for me, but I'm told it is an amazing day out. It's just south of Canterbury, if anyone's in the area. And of course, you know, every kind of ploughing, I'm going to be completely educated about what it's all about. But uh, lots of different ploughing competitions. There's even terrier racing, which um, if my dogs were a bit younger, I might have entered them for that. But I think at, at 14, they're probably a little bit long in the tooth for, <laughs> for racing. And I know you're really busy too. What have you got planned? I am, but for goodness sake, Dan, I'm worried. Don't get stuck in a furrow, will you? Because we'll never see you again. <laughs> I'll try not to. I'll be towed out by a tractor. <laughs> 
Oh, well, I've got two autumn sewing workshops coming up in early October. One is at the Global Artichoke in Hampshire on the 4th of October, and the other one is here on the patch at my home in Sussex on the 7th of October. There are a couple of places left on each, so details are on my website, and we might maybe put them in the show notes. We'll see. And then I've got a one-to-one consultation in someone's garden with a view to setting up a veg patch. Always good. Alatex are holding an evening workshop with Adventures in Flowers where you will create floral displays in a relaxing, calm environment on Thursday the 21st of September, 6.30 to 8.30pm at Torbury Farm, which is their head office near Petersfield. Details of how to book are on the Alatex website and in our show notes. Brilliant. I'm all for a relaxing, calm environment, so please sign me up. It's anything but that uh, where I live just at the moment. (laughs) Goodness, it's been so lovely to get back to podcasting and chatting with you, Julia. I don't know where the last hour has gone. Not that we ever really stopped talking. (laughs) We don't. We love a chin wag, don't we? And besides, I've missed your ears getting hot under your headphones. You haven't mentioned that this time. No, I can promise you they're hot. (laughs) So that's all for this episode. It just remains for me to say goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. You've been listening to the Two Good Gardeners podcast with Dan Cooper and Julia Parker. Sponsored by Alatex, home of the modern Victorian greenhouse designed in the UK for over 70 years and built worldwide. Thank you so much for listening. If you've enjoyed today's episode, then why not click follow on your favourite podcast platform so you don't miss out. Leaving a rating or writing a review will help us reach other gardening enthusiasts like you. We'll return here with a freshly prepared smorgasbord of delights in a fortnight. In the meantime, you can follow us on Instagram at Garden, at parkers underscore patch and at twogoodgardeners or visit our websites. You'll find the addresses in the show notes. If you've got questions for either of us, you can email them to hello at dancoopergarden.com. Until the next time, happy gardening!